0: All right. If you want to come back in and grab a seat, we'll get started. A uh, Couple notes. Um, one is that these coolers that are on, they are kind of leaking water. And so when we go to the end to communion, just to be aware, when you're walking next to them, careful that you don't slip. Uh, two, uh, I do realize that today the NFL started, and the Cardinals are on at 125. And there are games going on right now. So uh, if you have your phone out, I'll assume that you're on your Bible app. Um let's uh let's try to focus here for a little bit and uh I know my, my fantasy team's off to a good start. Not that I've looked, but I uh, wanna open uh with Psalm 139, if you want to turn there with me. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know them well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Then the psalmist goes on to say in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a beautiful hymn, a beautiful song, one of the most sacred of the psalms. It sings of the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, and it's deeply personal. This is about someone who has a deep personal relationship with God that's writing. The language has to do with knowledge, understanding, understanding a God who understands our own motivations. There's something comforting in it to know that God knows all of our motivations and yet still loves us. But the other thing about this psalm is that it invites examination and reflection. How often do we come before God and say, Search me, O God. Examine me. There's something deeply Stabilizing about this, to allow God to search us, to examine us. And I think it's important. We're starting a series today called Relatable. And it's all about how we relate to others. And I believe that in our life, we have a number of relationships that were kind of put in motion from the very beginning. If you look at the Genesis story, in Genesis 1 through 3, what we find is that God establishes humans, creates humans in his own image, male and female, created in the image of God places him in the garden. We have the story of Adam and Eve. And in this garden, uh, during the creation story, God puts a number of relationships in motion. The first is, we all know Adam. He's he's a gardener. He's in the garden of Eve, and he's told uh, to to be a steward of the creation. There's this relationship with him and the creation around him. Uh, We find that Adam and Eve uh, have a relationship together. There's this relationship, humans, as we interact with one another, We find that they don't have shame. They're naked and they have no shame. They're completely okay with who they are. There's this relationship with self that's important. And then finally, there's this connection with God. They have this relationship with their creator. And then we know how that story goes in Genesis chapter 3. Those relationships start to get severed, right? They are duped by the evil one. The serpent comes. And what we have is the fall of mankind. And these relationships that are established in the creation story are broken, and in the brokenness of those relationships, we have consequences. And these consequences create unsettled relationships. What does it mean to live in relationship with one another? To have relationships that flourish with, with myself, with others, and with God. Those are the things that we're going to discuss over the next couple of weeks. And I found this, that some of the people that I, I think are the most relatable, the people that I feel like I can connect with, that I, I really just enjoy being around them. I see them, and, and there's something about them. And, and I enjoy most of my relationships, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a little bit. Um, it might be my own kind of self-awareness. I just think everyone's always happy all the time. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed is about some people that are relatable, uh, they seem to have great self-awareness. There's a great self-awareness about them. They also, people who are relatable, have just humble hearts. There's this meekness to them. They're there's, there's a humility, but not in a way that is uh, like a negative way, in a way that just deflects kind of attention away from themselves. Um, there's also an authenticity about them. There's, there's an honesty, a genuineness, a, a truth-telling that comes from these people. And then there's empathy. There is this compassion or them able to uh, empathize with people around them. They can feel and understand. And, and when I think about these people who are relatable, I see kind of all of this, and And they seem to flourish in relationships. There's certain people in my life that they're they're so relational, I think I want to be like them. And and I'm reminded that that we're not called to be like anyone else. We're called to be ourselves, who God has created us to be. I think I heard an old old parable that says, we'll get to heaven someday. And God's not going to be upset that we weren't Moses, right? He's going to want us to be ourselves. All of us are created and wired a certain way. Um, those, those wirings are broken. We live in this world of brokenness, but God is calling us to live a certain kind of life. And when we start to understand uh, what he's called us to do, I, I believe that we, our relationships start to flourish. And so I want to talk about these, these different things uh, this week as we come to kind of an understanding of how we're wired, how God has, has created us. In uh, Confessions, Augustine wrote this. How can you draw close to God? When you are far from your own self? How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? John Calvin, the great reformer in 1530, wrote Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. There's something about doing a self-examination to understand uh, who I am, how God has created me to, to be, uh, that allows us to navigate some of our own brokenness and allows us to live in flourishing relationships with God and with others as we come to an understanding of ourselves. This month is going to be a time of self-reflection and self-examination, as Psalm 139 says. Today I want to talk about the topic of self-awareness, self-awareness, something that is Maybe something I don't—I'm not great at—and have been trying to learn. Self-awareness, I think, is an important thing. In fact, there was a study done uh, by the GreenPeak Partners and Cornell University, where they they interviewed 72 executives of public and private companies uh, who were successful. They all had certain revenues; these executives of 50 million to 5 billion dollars. And here's what they found out: the kind of the key determining factor of their success was that all of these leaders, uh, a high self-awareness score was the strongest predictor of overall success. Self-awareness, the strongest predictor of overall success. When you think about uh, these leaders, it it wasn't just their talent, even their work ethic. There was something about their own self-awareness as they led people and they led companies. They all had these strong self-awareness scores. my wife and I got married when I was young. I was 21 years old. Uh, she was a little bit older than that. I won't say how old. It's um, about two and a half year difference. And the first year, <laughs> the first year of our marriage uh, was was trouble. It was really, really difficult. And you know, I grew up in this Christian home. I always had this understanding that you know. Like you just wait to get married, and then everything's gonna be like amazing. And it's gonna be awesome, and you know if you did all the th- things the right way, and then got married. In the first like six months of marriage, I married the girl of my dreams, and like we were like, what are we doing? This is insane. This is crazy. This is difficult. I don't know if this is gonna make it. I remember like there were times where we're trying to navigate what life is when we come together, um, and and I just remember like both of us at times just curled up on the couch like like, not able to talk to each other, and we're like, we need counseling. Like, we had no idea what we were getting into. We got, I'm thinking I got married too young. What in the world? We go into counseling, and one of the things that, as we started to get counseling, I started to realize is that I have no self-awareness. This apparently affects my relationship with Marcy, and, um, and that was hard to hear. It was extremely hard to hear, because um, I, at that point, I think I was, you know, I, I was like, trying to be a college athlete, Uh, had kind of grown up in a small school where I was a big fish in a small pond. Everything had just been easy and given to me. And then all of a sudden I met with this conflict and met with resistance and trying to figure out, oh, like I need to grow up and and be an adult now. And that was hard for me to navigate. Um, Through a lot of really hard, I think, counseling sessions, I have got a little bit better at self-awareness, not great. Um, so I've gone through counseling. We've gone through marriage counseling. Uh, another thing is I've gone through ministry counseling. I want to be a good pastor and shepherd of people. Um, and one of the things that my, my ministry counselor identified is I have low self-awareness. You guys are all listening, right? Am I not am I No, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, and, and this is something I, I've been working on uh, is understanding my own limitations, understanding the way that uh, I am received by people. That was a new thing to me, like, How people actually receive what I'm saying or receive how I'm acting Um, and and I've realized this is something that's that's so important as a leader um, as a a pastor as a husband is to be aware of how I make other people feel how I'm perceived how I'm received Uh, one of the things I I read was a book on emotional intelligence some of you know EQ has been working on that Uh, Daniel Goleman, who wrote this book, says this about self-awareness. He would define self-awareness as knowing one's internal states, preferences, resources, and intuitions. Knowing one's internal states, preferences, resources, and intuitions. Here's the thing I I think I've learned about self-awareness, and this is something that I've been working on. Psalm 139 has helped me. But what I've found is that self-awareness leads to intimacy. It leads to connection. It leads to a closeness with people. The more self aware I am, the more I'm able to relate and to connect to people around me. Now, this is true of my relationships with each other. This is also true of my relationship with God. When I'm self aware of, of how uh, I am wired, what my soul, what are the things that are, are keeping my soul from God, there's an honesty here. It's, it's a type of confession that allows me to be in relationship with God and other people. Self-awareness leads to intimacy. Here's what I've found that as I've tried to, to think about self-awareness and do self-examination and reflection, there's a couple kind of tools the counselor has used in my life. Some of them have been great. Some of you have probably done similar kind of assessments. Maybe you, for your company that you work for, you might do like a Myers-Briggs and understand kind of how your personality is wired. Maybe you do like the Strengths finder. And I love the Strengths finder because it just tells me the things that I'm good at, you know, like... <laughs> Makes me feel good about myself, um, but there, there's one tool uh, that has been super helpful for me the last couple of years, and it's called the Enneagram. And uh, I, we're, we're doing something this month as a church that's a little bit different than what we usually do. We're assigning homework, and in those journals, there's this Enneagram, and what it is is it's a personality theory. And you might be like tuning out right now. You're like, oh, I don't like personality theories. I usually don't either. I don't like people to, like box me in, you know. Um, but the, the, the personality theory of the Enneagram, I think, is helpful. Here's what's been said about it. It says, the Enneagram helps us identify areas of weakness. And I think that's important. Usually when we do self-reflection and we're trying to learn more about ourselves, how often do we look at the things that we're weak at or broken? And it says, the Enneagram helps identify areas of weakness, which for Christians assist self-awareness for the purpose of greater transformation into the image of Christ through the Holy Spirit's leading and spiritual practices and community. For the Christian, it is particularly useful because it helps expose personal brokenness, sin, and shame, which can provide necessary clarity towards transformation. When this thing called the Enneagram kind of was brought, I, I wanted to resist it. It was this tool for personality theories. And as I started to kind of go through it and do this assessment with it, what I found is, It it, it brings to light and exposes these things in my life that are broken. It, It looks at things that have caught, like, I'm insecure about, and then because of that, how I'll react in certain social situations because of my own insecurities. It exposes some of the things that are broken in my life, and then what it does is it offers kind of rhythms or practices to say, here's how you allow just the Holy Spirit to transform you in the midst of your relationships, so we don't do this very often as a church, but for the next month, if you want to, what we have is in these journals, um, kind of this, uh, some of these practices for the Enneagram. And uh, and I, I want to kind of go through some of the personality types. Uh, don't usually do this in a sermon. In fact, when I see a pastor I have a list of nine things, I usually tune out. I have a list of nine things for you. So... Um, but, but here are the kind of personality types, and as I read through these, maybe what you could do is just kind of reflect on which one you think you are. And so this is a little bit different, I know that, um, but let me go through these. Each Enneagram personality type has a number. The first number is called the perfectionist, the perfectionist. It's also called the reformer, the only people that call it that are perfectionists. So um, the perfectionist, four words that describe them are idealist, principled, independent and critical here's their survival strategy i must be perfect and good so everything they do is filtered through trying to be perfect and good their very image conscience the vice of the one is anger the virtue is serenity just to let you know uh this is kind of personal but tim Stansel is a one (laughs) our worship pastor uh, and, and if you know how creative Tim is, um, some of the stuff that he does from a marketing standpoint, from an artistic standpoint, is excellent. We had someone come in and assess our team and our staff. And some of the practical advice they gave for Tim was, Tim, when you're working on a project, I want you to follow the 80% rule. And Tim's like, what does that mean? Because that's not 100%. And they said, well, 80% means if it's 80% done, it's done. You don't need to finish the extra twenty percent. And Tim's like, "Ooh, I don't know if I could do that." (laughs) Uh, But that's one of the things that perfectionists struggle with. Is it has like there's this perfectionism that comes, and it's a good thing, and when it's filtered the right way. Number two is the helper. The helper forwards relational, generous, insecure, and self unaware. The survival strategy is I must be helpful and caring. Their vice is pride. Uh, Their virtue is humility. And just to let you know, I am a number two. This is my number. It's usually um, a number that, that a lot of women are, so I don't know what that says about me, um, but I am a number two. Um, number three is the achiever. And their four words are image, conscience, ambitious, adaptable, and motivated. Their survival strategy is, I must be impressive and attractive. Their vice is deceit, their virtue is truthfulness. Um, Achievers are self-starters. They, they get going. They love to achieve. Uh, our children's director, Christine Altavilla, is, is a three, and here's why. Her main job, she works for World Vision, and she works for the church. She recruits volunteers to run marathons and do children's ministry. I can't think of two more difficult things to recruit people to, <laughs> but she's a three. Like, she wants to achieve, and, and so she's, she's very driven. Number four is the individualist. This is usually the artists. They're dramatic, artistic, melancholic, intuitive. Their survival strategy is, I must be unique and different. Their vice is envy, their virtue is calm. The number five is the investigator. The four words that describe this personality type is perceptive, detached, informed, introverted. Their survival strategy is, I must be knowledgeable and equipped. Their vice is avarice, their virtue is non-attachment. Number six, the questioner uh, or the loyalist. Four words is fearful, loyal, procrastination, committed. Their survival strategy is, I must be secure and safe. They value security and safety. Their vice is fear. Their virtue is courage. Number seven is the enthusiast. Their four words are entertaining, accomplished, uninhibited, and manic. Survival strategy, I must be fun and entertained. I thought I was this one, but apparently not. Um, Their vice is gluttony. Their virtue is sobriety. Number eight is the challenger. Their four words are self-confident, deci- uh, decisive, just, and a leader. Their survival strategy is I must be strong and in control. Their vice is lust. Their virtue is innocence. Um, so maybe if you're like, oh, I don't need this Enneagram, like, it doesn't mean it. Like, you're probably an eight, let's be honest. Like, <laughs> you're a challenger. Like, you're against it. Um, one thing that I noticed is when I, and, and what you'll find is when you, you have, like, a, a number When you go unhealthy, you become something else. And for me, like when I go to unhealth, I become an eight, I become a challenger. I become, and and that doesn't look like a good leader, that looks like a really stubborn leader. And so um, I've had people kind of help me reel that back in. Number nine is the peacemaker. Their four words are peaceful, reassuring, complacent, neglected. Their survival strategy is I must maintain peace and calm at all costs. These are people that are super non-confrontational, uh, they, they cannot handle confrontation. At the same time, they're often the glue in, in communities. They're relationship builders. Their vice is laziness, their virtue is action. So that's kind of a list of these different personality types. Uh, I don't know, like just kind of hearing that list, what you might think you identify as. But here's what I think I like about it. One is that it helps us understand our brokenness. The other thing is it helps us understand how we interact with other numbers. And so my wife and I, we've identified our numbers and, and we started to realize, like, your motivation to this or you acting like this actually influences me. And when I say something and you respond, like, to a way that I don't want you to respond, a lot of that is kind of, like, because of our own, our own wiring. So it's kind of something that helps marriages. It helps us, I think, in the workplace as we think about the teams that we're a part of or the teams that we're leading. Um, and, I, and I think it just kind of helps raise self-awareness. So I just wanted to run that through real quick. There is some stuff in the journals about it. If you wanna take the assessment, you can find it at the enneagraminstitute.com. And it's one of these things that will give you all sorts of information about kind of your profile, how you're wired, how to interact with other people. I believe that self-awareness, so it it leads to this intimacy that comes uh, from from really understanding ourselves, our our limitations, our brokenness. Moving on, the self-awareness, it also, it leads to repentance. So if it helps us, our self-awareness helps us flourish in relationships with one another. It also helps us in our relationship with God. There's a change that occurs when we start to understand our own brokenness. There's a change that occurs when we start to understand our own destructive tendencies. We're going one way, and then we change the direction that we're going. This is kind of what repentance is. We're acting a certain way and then we change our behavior. I believe that when we come into relationship with Jesus, when we have this encounter with him, it changes us and it, and it starts to mold us to be the more Christ-like in our walk. And that happens from us coming to God and saying and admitting, this is who I am, this is my brokenness, this is where I need help. And in fact, this is where our relationship with God starts, is us Confessing our own brokenness to God, then He starts to take that brokenness and heal it and put it back together. There's this fascinating story that takes place in John chapter four, and some of you know the story. Uh, Jesus is traveling, and as He's traveling, as His disciples go into the city uh, to make provisions for Him, He stays outside of the city. He goes to this well, and at this well, in the middle of the day, He meets this woman. And the woman that we know is is someone who has kind of a questionable character, and they start this conversation. And Jesus is interacting with this woman. And what's what's amazing is, is this woman, with all of her brokenness, she's out here in the middle of the day at the well, probably because she knows no one else is going to be there. She doesn't want to interact with anyone. And she runs into Jesus. And what we find in this conversation is that Jesus is talking to her, and he's telling her all about herself. God knows us. Jesus knows everything about us, the good and the bad. And this woman in this conversation starts to realize who this person is that she's talking to. And through the the process of this conversation, what we find is a transformation takes place in the life of this woman. And then after this transformation takes place, she goes back into the town, and she's telling everybody about this person that she met named Jesus. And what she says is, come and hear about the man who told me everything about what I've ever done you think this isn't something that you would boast about, something that you'd be proud about, her own brokenness. And yet in this encounter with Jesus, she's realized that brokenness has led to all these different decisions that she's made. And in this encounter with Jesus, there's not condemnation, there's transformation that takes place. The church has practiced this this ancient art of confession for years, where we come to God with our sin, We come to God with our brokenness. We come to God with our limitations and we say, here I am, here's what I've struggled with. Here's what I'm struggling with, Lord. Search me, you know my heart. Psalm 139 is beautiful because the God who knows our key motivations, he knows the things that reside inside of us and he meets us not with condemnation but with transformation. Jesus loves us exactly as we are but he loves us too much to leave this just as we are because he's calling us to this life of greater fulfillment, eternal life, life with him. This is important as we become self-aware of our own sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? Romans 7 says, that in me dwells no good thing. We're broken people. We're broken people, and there's a beauty to that because God meets us in our brokenness and invites us to transformation. Romans 8 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in his likeness, a sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. These are beautiful words written by the Apostle Paul. That therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Because of the cross. Because Jesus coming in the form of a human in flesh takes our brokenness, takes the consequences of our brokenness on the cross, absorbs it on the cross and says, I offer you new life, life eternal. Self-awareness is us coming to this moment realizing that we can't save ourselves, and we allow God to do a work inside of our soul. Self-awareness leads to soul work, and I would say this self-awareness, it leads to growth. And I want to talk a little bit about the soul and the self, because as we talk about this idea of self-awareness, what, I, what I'm not talking about is us being just in, inwardly focused in a selfish way, but understanding that God is doing a great work in our soul. We are spiritual beings, There's something about us that is eternal, and God is working in our souls. We live in a culture that uh, often will focus on the self and forget about the soul. Eugene Peterson says this in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. He says, in our current culture, soul has given way to self. As the term of choice to designate who and what we are. But self is the soul minus God. Self is what is left of the soul with all the transcendence and intimacy squeezed out in the self with little or no reference to God, transcendence or others' intimacy. But soul is a word reverberating with relationships, God relationships, human relationships, earth relationships. Self in both common speech and scientific discourse mostly is an isolating term meaning the individual. And when soul and self are turned into adjectives in colloquial speech, the contrast becomes even clearer. Soulish, as an adjective, means deep and relational and significant. Where selfish, as an adjective, means surface, unrelational, self-absorbed. By setting these two words side by side, soul and self triggers a realization that the fundamental aspect of our identity, it's under assault every single day. We live in a culture that has replaced soul with self, As we think about our own self-awareness, our, our identity is attack, under attack every single day in this culture that we live in, telling us where our worth is, uh, telling us where our identity is. And the truth is that our soul, who we are, our inner core is found in God, in Jesus. And then in the presence of Jesus, there's peace, there's growth, there's transformation. And the self-awareness... When we examine ourselves, as Psalm 139 says, we allow God to come in and do a good soul work. And when we have a good self-awareness, or I would say soul awareness, I don't know if that's a cheesy phrase, if we have good soul awareness, our relationships with ourselves, with others, and with God start to flourish. So this is going to be a month that we just sit and examine ourselves, that we reflect on who we are, who God has created us to be, We think about our limitations, our brokenness, and we say, Lord, transform us so that we can be healthy in relationships with you, healthy in relationships with others, that we could produce fruit. We could be the kind of person that you've created us to be. Self-awareness allows us to flourish in our relationships, and it starts with an encounter with Jesus where he starts to transform us. One of the ways that we... Uh, we practice this story, this gospel that we're a part of, is through communion. Communion for us is this sacred act where we center our lives around this gospel story of what Jesus has done for us. And today we're going to move to communion uh, in a time of self-reflection and examination. And as you come to the communion table today, we practice open communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to the table. What we do is we are reminded of the work that God has done on the cross, which sets our soul free. The work that happened on the cross where God breaks his body open and he pours his blood out, gives us life. It allows our our soul uh, to live eternally. We remember that as we take communion. But then also as we take communion, we proclaim this message. That now, Lord, we are joining you in this story that's going somewhere. This story that is eternal. We're a part of this family, the church, both this local expression of it, and then this global and historic church that is the body of Christ. And, Lord, we want you to make us new so that we could be more like you. That we would experience your goodness, and then from that, through our lives, would flow goodness to the relationships around us. So we come to the communion table today in the self-reflection. As we get ready, the, the band's going to come back up. And I thought that we could recite this Psalm 139 this uh, together. If you would stand to your feet. Let's read this together as a prayer. And I'll pray. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. So if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us. That you desire a relationship with us. That you know us. You created us. You know the worst things about us. You know the best things about us, and you choose to love us still. And you take the worst things about us, Lord, and you say, I'm going to make that better. I'm going to make a way for you to experience life that is eternal. And you love us sacrificially. Lord, we often talk about how, uh, even as a church, we want to change this community. We want to change this world. And we're reminded, Lord, that first we have to change ourselves. We'd ask that you would come in and do a good work in us. You would point out the things, Lord. That are offensive to you. You would point out the things, Lord, that hinder us from being in relationships with other people. Lord, you would point out the things uh, that we believe about ourselves that are just lies from Satan, that rob us of the joy that you offer us. Lord, as we kind of look at different tools this month that can help lead to, to better awareness, soul awareness, Lord, we ask that you would give us just clarity. It'd be like waking up, Lord. And we would understand how we are received. And Lord, we just ask that you would would bless our relationships. That you would bless our marriages, our families, our children. You would bless our community. That the fruit of your spirit would be evident in this place and with these people. You would search us, Lord. We give you this time and say, Lord, move in our hearts and stir us towards growth more and more. We're grateful for your cross. We're grateful for the resurrection. We're grateful for the, uh, the life that we look forward to with you someday. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.